Today is Wednesday, June 28th, 2017. Time for episode 10 of the Barnhart Podcast. In recent news, we're not on YouTube anymore. It's a YouTube-free zone. Hooray! So YouTube won. They've uh, succeeded in chasing us away and convincing us not to use their platform anymore. Yep. I mean, my, my channel is still there, and the stuff that is extant on YouTube is still there for now, presumably. But it became clear to me that what the situation is, and I, I think I put this on the blog, is what's going to happen is that anyone who is not a member of this satanic social justice warrior ideology, whoever does not capitulate to that, all these people have to do is go on YouTube and then hit the flagging button, which sends sends something and an algorithm is, is what initially uh, blocks something. And then maybe if you're lucky, and I don't even know, maybe human beings never even look at any of this stuff. But see, that's just how it's going to be. And so we might as well just move off of that platform right now and get our ducks in a row so that we're not so that we're not having to deal with this every week. So yeah, we're done. And I'm, I'm happy to go ahead and have us spend money on on buying bandwidth so that people so that we can self-host and it's not going to be a problem. People have also suggested other platforms and we see those emails, but for every one of those platforms, there's just problems. There's problems of um, the performance of the application itself. There's problems with the company itself and what the company is about. I mean, somebody even recommended that I use that. Um, I can't even remember what that platform is. Vimeo. That all of the rap. Well, there's Vimeo and there's another one oh, that all SoundCloud? the rappers that rappers use, and they post all of these videos of you know rap music videos which are horrible and then you know black people getting in fights on the street people recorded on their phone and then post it onto this this platform so that black people can watch each other beat the crap out of each other for some unknown reason facebook to me yeah exactly (laughs) so you know what let's just be done with it let's be done with it and and keep on keeping on in this way as long as we can and then when we have to modify again we'll modify again but let's Let's, I, I, you know, I'm, that's me. I'm just not about screwing around. I am not about screwing around. If there's a problem, fix it. Don't sit around and wait for it to get 10 times worse. Just fix it. And that's what we've done. Right. And in terms of these algorithms, I've written a few of these in my career, and it only takes a handful of uh, coordinated schemers to trip the algorithm to go into safety mode. And something like YouTube, they're operating in safety mode so you know a a sufficient cohort of people have said this is offensive this is racist or whatever it is that they don't like and so that trips the algorithm that that for their safety takes it offline and then they they look up say who is this oh there's a southern poverty law center entry about ann barnhart and we should talk about them sometime uh so good luck getting anything back at that point so yeah, uh, the other the other options that were raised like vimeo uh heck no these guys are are you know huge supporters of, of gay pride and uh, they are also known for just not having any rules about content decency. Uh, one, yeah. of, one of the other rules that, or one of the other places that was re- referenced was uh, it's primarily religious oriented and, you know, talking about social justice warriors flagging a podcast or a recording, there's a reason why this podcast is listed as explicit. It's because Anne uses some language every once in a while. And if that tag wasn't there, then the goody two-shoes uh, or the people who want to portray themselves that way are going to say, mm-hmm. all these people are cussing in a show that, that isn't marked as explicit. You need to take them offline for the children. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's algorithm protection that, that this is marked explicit. This isn't, we're not talking like the Howard Stern show. It's just, you know, being protecting ourselves in, in a reasonable manner from the social justice types 
Well, really, it basically comes down to the word faggot, it seems to me. That is that is the word that, that apparently you cannot use. And we're going to talk about uh, true homophobia here in a few minutes. But it seems to me that's probably what it is. And then I still have to write up my piece on the Jews. I'm sorry about this. About part two about the Jew situation. In fact, that there are people who, who hold themselves out as Christian who do not want the Jews to be converted and evangelized. And so I strongly suspect that some of those people were the ones who flagged my podcast on the Jews because I get an enormous amount of hate mail from them, first of all. I know they're watching. I know they're listening. And they're the ones who don't want that information out. So it's this, when you're basically doing business with somebody else like this, which that that is a relationship with YouTube or whatever, um, you're, you're at their mercy, essentially. Um, so if you can just, if you can control as much as you possibly can, so much the better. And we do have the ability right now, given, given the audience size. And like I said on the blog, if the audience grows, well, one could reasonably expect that revenues will increase proportionately and then we will have money to, um, to throw at that. And also, um, let's not forget super nerd. Super nerd is getting very close to the point where he's, you're going to be able to start selling the, the DVD version of the diabolical narcissism video. Is that right? I have everything ready except for the actual page where you can place an order. And I'm probably going to just do PayPal for that since it's easy, quick, fast, efficient, and, uh, we'll get the job done, but I've got everything else done. The DVD production is all set up. I've got the, the cases, I've got the mailing stuff, mailing stuff, the packaging. So everything mm-hmm. is pretty much ready to go there. In fact, if you want to email podcast at barnhart.biz and say, sign me up for an early access buy, then we can set it up that way and I can just bill you by email. And it's just going to be, right now, it's just the Diabolical Narcissism video, correct. right? Correct, correct. Okay, cool. All right, awesome. So that'll, that nobody's, like I said, nobody's going to be making a huge amount of money off of that because what, it's going to be 20 bucks, is that right? Yes, uh, so twenty bucks, you know. By the time shipping and all of that, there'll be just a tiny little bit left over. But I think we, Super Nerd and I, can kind of both commit that the first priority will be to pay the bills for whatever pod uh, uh, bandwidth we have to buy for this, and then you know other other things. And people actually have already um, donated to me, and there's been a little flag note on the donation that said, "Hey, throw this at the podcast." So that that those funds will help to offset the any expense we might incur for additional bandwidth. So it's all good. It'll be fine. And the last thing I want to say about YouTube and bandwidth, um, a great saying I picked up from another podcast that if you are not paying for a product, then you are the product. In the case of YouTube, you are the product in the, in the sense that uh, the videos and the content you produce is a platform for YouTube to sell ads. And the bandwidth provider we're using right now, we're paying for the bandwidth. So they're not going to inject themselves. Uh, not too much anyway. It's, it's, exactly. very, it's very passive. Exactly the same thing can be said of Facebook. You know, people don't realize this. What, okay, Facebook is quote unquote free. Well, no, you and access to you and spying on you and these new smartphones listening into your conversations and then pushing advertising content to you. You are the product, just like Super Nerd just said, which is yet another reason why you shouldn't be on these platforms. And they they really are dangerous. They start out as as relatively benign, but at the rate that things are devolving and degenerating, can't you see where this is going? Can't you see how important it is to get yourself 
yourself extracted from this crap before it literally does turn into the French Revolution. And they're using stuff like that to hunt you down, to disqualify you from employment, to disqualify you from banking, et cetera, et cetera. That's where all of it's going. And I, I just think people who are on Facebook are just incredibly foolish to be there. And I would really encourage people get off of that. And we're also going to talk about uh, cable again. And I'm going to reiterate that whole thing about cable television. Get yourself extracted from these paradigms now while you still can. Oh, if you don't believe that Facebook and uh, is, I have read multiple stories from uh, people in, in, in the you know, technology industry where as part of their interview process, as part of their, their being hired process, they're asked, what are your social media links? You know, what, what's your Twitter? What's your Facebook account, which, you know, on the one hand, this, how, how lazy can you be for a, for a company hiring somebody? You can't figure this out yourself. But no, they, they are definitely already, they being um, potential employers, you, they are already reviewing what your social media activity is. And uh, if you do something stupid and post party pictures of getting drunk and doing stupid things, yeah, that's... Or smoking weed and all of that, of course. As an as a former employer, I, I learned that lesson fairly early on. When I first opened Barnhart Capital Management, I hired a, a summer intern. And lo and behold, after this chick just abandons, uh, abandons her post and leaves without any notice, I, I Google stalk her find her um, Facebook, and then what was the thing before Facebook? MySpace? MySpace. MySpace, okay. So she had a MySpace page and a Facebook page, and it was back in the days when you could see all this stuff. It was kind of open. And, oh, my gosh, she's making posts about me about what a horrible person I am. She was going down at lunch and and drinking and getting drunk in her truck down in the parking lot. She would leave and be gone for, like, 45 minutes. She's posting on Facebook and MySpace what she's doing. She's going down and getting drunk. And and there's pictures of her, you know, doing very bad, immoral things with with young gentlemen and alcohol and hot tubs. And I'm like, wow, what a dummy I am that I didn't you know, I just trusted that because this girl was in the cattle business that she, you know, that she came from a ranch and all that, that she was probably a decent human being. And it turned out to be not the case. So lesson learned. Absolutely. Anybody, you know, anybody under the age of, of probably 45 who owns a business now knows that when you get a resume from somebody, the first thing you do is you do a search engine search of them and just see what comes up. Yeah. And there's probably, you could probably make a story there about the corrupting influence of the media reaching even, uh, innocent cowgirls who, who ought to be immune yeah. from all this. Uh, one of the last things I want to say about Facebook and, and I'm not going to develop the thought if I can find it, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes, but there is a link of the FBI director, He's got an office at Facebook. There is a definite intentional overlap between domestic intelligence collection and Facebook. And uh, I'll just just leave it at that. Let's get to some different recent news. 11 days ago, June 17th, the guided missile destroyer USS Fitzgerald collided with a container ship off the coast of Japan. There are a total of six investigations between the United States, Japan, and international shipping authorities going on. But very little has been said publicly, which is causing some very wild theories to begin to percolate with regard to what really happened. Uh, several of these, if you go look on, if, if you go look on YouTube, uh, again, where you are the product and you search for USS Fitzgerald and theory, you can hear things like Michael Savage saying that the, the, what really happened is that Obama dumbed down the military to the point that people can't drive a ship to get out of the way of a container vessel. There are conspiracies Ooh. that there are conspiracies <laughs> that the Filipino crew had more than a few Abu Sayyaf, 
which are ISIS-related um, people who, who, who managed to use the ship to attack an American vessel. Highly yeah, unlikely. And I'll get to that in a minute. Highly unlikely, yeah. The entertaining ones are the tinfoil hat theories. Uh, there's one that the, the vessel, which if, if you go look at the track, it passed by the U.S. ship, made a U-turn and came back. And when it passed the first time, it dropped off an EMP weapon, which disabled it, allowing it to come back and ram it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if anybody who takes that seriously, just listen to Anne laughing. That's, that's the appropriate re- reaction. There's also the theory that North Korea hacked the commercial vessels autopilot. Uh, there's a theory that China or Russia was doing GPS hacking so that the commercial vessel, which was operating on autopilot thought it was on the correct track when it turned around, came back and hit the U S ship. I don't think any of that makes I any sense whatsoever. I don't think so. Uh, my conclusion, you, for, you forgot, you forgot, you forgot the tractor beams and the holograms and the shape-shifting lizard Jews. We just always have to throw those three things in just so that we cover all of the tinfoil hat bases. Every plot device from Star Trek, the next generation gets an honorable mention when things like this happen. Oh, so that's, that's holograms, true. I forgot holograms, that one. tractor beams and shape-shifting lizard Jews. So there you go. Okay. Now I'm going to let, I'm going to let super nerd riff here because super nerd, it turns out actually does have some really interesting expertise and experience in this general area. So super nerd dazzle us and give us some explanation and background and context of what, what exactly happened here? Do you think? I don't know if it's going to be dazzling, but uh, you said general Mm. experience. I would take it a step further and say specific experience. The USS Fitzgerald is a, is a ship of the class called early Burke. It is a destroyer, which is a follow on to the class of the Ticonderoga class cruisers of the U S Navy. And these are what's called Aegis ships. So the, the, the primary system on these boats, and this is why they cost well over a billion dollars a piece, are these fixed flat panel 3D air search radars, which are the most advanced air search radars in the world. And I forgot to mention that, you know, in, in terms of any kind of conspiracy theories, if anybody benefits from the Fitzgerald being out of action, it would be anybody who wants to lob a ballistic missile because these ships are extraordinarily adept at picking up and shooting down something flying through the air. That is their, that's their reason for being. Now, these ships are also extremely agile. They have four General Electric GM or LM2500 gas turbine engines, which if they're jet engines. That's what they are. That's what provides power for these things to go. And they're very fuel hungry. They, they, they're not the most efficient things in the world for powering a ship. But what, they, what makes them ideal for a combat vessel is you can be cruising along on, on one engine, which is the, you know, obviously you use the, le- the least fuel that way. And from the word go, Somebody in engineering presses a button, and within 45 seconds, you've got all four engines online, and you're making turns for, for flank speed. So the point being is that these ships can maneuver very quickly. So that was what we were talking about earlier in the week, is that I saw a news, uh, a news article, some pretty serious reportage, that said that the, um, the cargo ship went hard to starboard, and then the collision was 10 minutes later. So it, it wasn't like... Yeah, you know, these people, somebody saw this stuff coming and saw this collision coming at them. And there was a 10 minute. That's how long it takes for these these maneuvers to happen. But what you're saying is that the Fitzgerald was hyper maneuverable and should have been able to easily get the heck out of the way in any direction conceivably. Is that right? Well, not it, because the Navy ships are so maneuverable and they don't follow commercial shipping lanes. There, there's a rule of thumb for commercial, for uh, commercial shipping that if it's gray, stay away because you don't know how they're going to maneuver or why they're going to maneuver and they won't tell you. And in terms of seeing so something gray, happen, gray, gray means U.S. Navy or, any, or it, all Navy ships. Navy? All Navy ships all are painted some okay. some some shade of we call them haze gray because it's low visibility. The idea is 
something painted high visibility, you can see it 10 miles away out at sea. Literally, right. that, that's you can see it from the horizon. Um, mm-hmm. Commercial vessels, easy to see. Something that's, that's haze gray, it's a little harder to see, but you can still see it. In terms mm-hmm. of seeing something, this happened at, well, depending upon which timeline you're looking at, one thirty or 2.20 in the morning. So it, this is at night. And that's part of the that's part of what's fueling the conspiracy theories is that initially the reports all said this happened at one thirty in the morning, and then after conferring with U.S. and, and Japanese sources, they said nope, it happened at two twenty in the morning. And uh, people then can look up the track of, of at least the commercial ship, which is available through uh, different websites that track the AIS system, which is uh, stands for Automated Information System. It's basically a system that that uh, it's publicly available. Land-based radar is tracking merchant shipping at sea. And so you can hmm. see the track of the ACX crystal. That's the the, com- the commercial ship here. It made a, a hard right turn at about 1.30, steamed on for six miles, made a U-turn, came back, hung out in the area, and then resumed course and went, went on. Um, one of the other things that, that is mentioned in a few sources, like Michael Savage and some other places, is is why weren't the... Uh, why weren't the lookouts using night vision goggles? And that, to me, as somebody who's who's stood the the night watch, uh, both both as a, as a navigator and as just a, a an able bodied seaman doing a, a a lookout to see if there are other vessels out there, we don't use night vision goggles. We, you don't have to. Uh, any ship at sea, out out at um, out at sea, you're supposed to run uh, use running lights. In fact, it is a violation of all kinds of international shipping rules in pretty much every. Uh, every nation's rules. If you are out at sea without lights on, you're breaking the law and, and you're going to be in trouble. And in my Navy experience, we only did that once or twice. And when we did, we posted additional lookouts because it's completely our responsibility to stay out of other people's way because we've just made it hard for them to see us. Mm-hmm. So the the other thing too, to realize is where this, where this um, collision took place is in a very well-known international shipping lane. I, I've made the analogy that it's like a, a cop car with its lights out, making a U-turn across eight lanes of traffic uh, to go pursue somebody and didn't notice that an 18-wheeler was coming down the road and got T-boned as he made this made his uh, cut across traffic. And this gets back in, this gets to my conclusion and that based on what little we know, and, and I want to stress this, we don't really know what happened here and the Navy doesn't talk about their investigations until it's done because they want to be sure they've got all the, the details and, and have everything figured out. We, di- we don't have enough to really know for sure, but it sounds like the Navy ship is at fault. Um, because they are the ones who were basically playing in the middle of the freeway and, and the, the commercial ship would have been on autopilot, which is, there's nothing sinister about that. It's just the most efficient way to get from point A to point B, um, Mm -hmm. based on the, the track that we know from, uh, from automated information system, the, the way the rules of the road go for collision uh, avoidance, the Navy, the Navy ship was on the left-hand side as viewed from the commercial, uh, ship. So the Navy ship had the duty to, to give way. And they didn't, which is why when people talk about, hey, the, the, the commercial ship took a hard right turn at the end because they were trying to ram them. No, they're trying to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Now, they're, without, knowing, without being there, it's, it's hard to know why they turned right instead of left because you know, the rule of thumb, if, if a ship is crossing from your left to right in front of you, you turn left. You, you aim at their stern because by the time you get there, they're gone. Um, it, it could be a combination of, of a few different things. Um, the Michael Savage idea that, that the people running the ship just weren't very bright because Obama dumbed down the military and all the competent people left could be. Yeah. But yeah. You know, something else. That's, that, where, that's where I am with, with affirmative action and, you know, bending over backwards to put completely unqualified females in command positions and this business of just, you know, people are promoted in the military now with almost more 
affirmative action vigor than in the private sector or even in academia. It seems like you're hearing stories out of the Air Force Academy and this kind of stuff all the time, that if you're a sex pervert um, woman of color with a profound handicap, I mean, they'll just they'll make you a general, you know, just without any, without any merit. So, and that's, that's the point that I took from all of this and what I suspect happened and just reiterating it, people, we as Americans tend to assign notions of hyper competence to people in positions of authority. Um, we do it in the business world that, well, if so-and-so's the boss, that must mean he's really smart and he really knows what he's doing. No, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. There's some massively incompetent people at the top of business. It's the same in academia. It's the same in the church. It's the same, sadly, in the United States military, the United States government, intelligence, we Americans tend to assign hyper-competence to these people, and what you have to get your mind around is, is no. America is not magic. The American military is not magic, and it's dangerous to ascribe uh, almost, almost supernatural or preternatural powers to, to the U.S. military and the U.S. government and U.S. intelligence when there's, there's so much in, true incompetence that you, you think that you're being protected, but you're not. So that's that's kind of how I came away from it. Now, go on, keep there's, going. I know there's you have definitely, some more details. There's definitely an angle to that. And and from what I from my time in the Navy, yes, there there is going to be an element of uh, affirmative action, but usually that's on the accession side into into some program. For example, naval aviators, somebody back in the eighties thought, Oh, this is horrible that they're all white men. Well, mm-hmm. okay, maybe only white men wanted to fly, but uh, because somebody perceived this to be a problem the qualifications and who got accepted into the Navy flight program was suddenly, if you were either uh, not white or if you were a female, it became really easy to get into the program. But once you were in, all the same rules applied. Same thing with the Navy SEALs. Somebody said, hmm, very weird that we have all white men and just a few Asians. Where are all the black guys trying out for the SEALs? So if you met all the minimum requirements to get into BUDS and you you were a minority class that wasn't well enough represented, according to some people, you got into BUDS. Mm -hmm. You probably got Mm -hmm. washed out three days later because that's why you didn't get into BUDS before. You You don't just get into that program because you hit the minimum qualifications. You've got to exceed them. Um, but wouldn't you say now they've taken it to the next step where in order to get people through buds or or flight training or whatever, that they are now consciously actively lowering lowering the standards, especially for women? I mean, this this notion of what was it last year, women in the green berets or something like that. And they just had to keep dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping the physical standards, because obviously women are never, ever the most the most intense super crossfit champion female cannot even approach doing the kind of upper body strength stuff that's required to pass those programs and so the only thing that they can do is drop the standards do you do you see that that standards are actively being dropped or do you think they're still washing these people out um I, there might be an element of that but what i was where i was going to go with the affirmative action that's typically on the officer side uh and and that's, mm. that's going to be in the leadership uh, part of it. And there's a great rule of thumb with regard to how the Navy works. It's run by the enlisted, but it's led by the officers. So even if you had a bunch of affirmative action flunkies on the bridge who didn't know what the heck is going on, and by the way, as, as counterintuitive as it might seem, because Navy ships and commercial ships don't seem to move all that fast, things do happen fast, especially when you're not really sure what's going on. Yeah, something mm-hmm. is 10 miles away. Now it's 9.8 miles away. Now it's 9.6 miles away. Um, the fact that nobody was, well, we don't know for sure, but I, I can definitely understand having been in similar situations 
where we don't know what's going on. So we're going to use our superior speed and maneuverability just to get the heck out of the way because we don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, that didn't happen here. And another thing, too, uh, this class of ship, they, you, you'd have people watching the radars, assuming all the radars were working. You've got at least two military surface search radars uh, in addition to the, the spy system. That's the Aegis radar, which can do surface search as well. Uh, probably uh, a commercial surface search radar. And one of the people who is part of the combat information system works on the bridge, and that's to keep an a, a independent eye away from the group think of the people going on uh, down, down in the combat information center. And his, his role is to half interface with combat and half interface with the, the navigation team to make sure that there is yet another impartial set of eyes watching everything. There, there are layers and layers of fail-safe to make sure that somebody saw this, the, the ACX crystal coming. One argument would be that they were really concentrating on something else. Uh, maybe they were watching a submarine. But even still, that would mean a whole lot of people have to drop the ball. We'll find out more when all the details come out. But based on what, what's available at the moment, it really looks like just a series of failures on the side of the USS Fitzgerald. And yes, maybe North Korea benefits short-term that one of our best anti-missile uh, ships is out, out, of, out of action. But that's just... That, they, the North Koreans don't have the ability to pull off getting the, the, the Fitzgerald out of action. Yeah, I agree. Well, it'll be interesting. And, and I hope at some point that someone who is actually on the bridge is able to speak probably off the record um, and lend some insight to what exactly the heck happened. I just I just found the whole thing morbidly interesting that that something it, it just seems incomprehensible that something like that could happen. But thank you, Super Nerd, for for giving us some interesting information about that. And I mentioned the idea of night vision. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, they, we, we don't use night vision at sea because when you're out at sea, you are so far away from light pollution, you don't need it. Uh, and, yeah. And, and uh, it, it's, the human eye is remarkably able to see things at, at night. And so we, you know, the sh- commercial ships or any other ships out there that are running their, their running lights, even at the very edge of, of human perception to be able to see it, you can see those 10, 12 miles away. So the idea of why didn't they have night vision? Well, you only do that when you're actually in a state of war, when you're expecting something to happen. And even then, it's kind of redundant. I've, I've used night vision goggles at sea, and all they do is just make what, what you could see with your naked eyes a whole lot brighter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on this, and if any new information comes out, I'm sure we'll revisit the topic. I'm sure we're gonna, there's going to be more coming out, but this is going to take some time. Like I said, the Navy's got two investigations going on. The Coast Guard's doing an investigation. The Japanese are doing an investigation, and there's a couple more going on as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another recent news story, you mentioned that uh, there was a seminary recently who bounced a couple of rather open sodomites after a lot of complaints from other students about the two you know, potential Lavender Mafia recruits. Given that it's Pride Month, I have a question for you. <laughs> How much? Given that it's Pride Month. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> nice setup, huh? How much truth is there to the notion that the real and more dangerous form of homophobia is that otherwise upstanding good people don't stand up to sodomites for the fear of lawsuits and being called mean. Exactly, exactly. And I heard, um, I was in correspondence with some of the, with one of the students from the seminary, just kind of as a follow-up. And it was so interesting what he said. First of all, these two sodomites that were thrown out at the end were literally wearing makeup. They were wearing makeup openly, so there's not like there was any excuse anymore that any of this could be denied. The second thing that he said is that after they were thrown out, that the entire mood and, and atmosphere inside the seminary 
improved by orders of magnitude because apparently these sodomites, these two sodomites had been, you know, their entire mission in life was just to divide everybody and dividing people into factions, dividing people into camps, you know, gossiping constantly, trying to pit people against each other to where the entire seminary was just basically walking on eggshells all the time. Nobody knew, you know, who they could trust or anything. It, it was it was a horrible thing, which just goes back to the, the core base thesis about sodomites is that they are diabolical narcissists. And because they are so miserable and they hate happiness and they hate goodness, um, that when they see something good, they try to destroy it. So, for example, seeing um, good young Catholic men studying in the seminary and, you know, forming forming friendships and, and camaraderie and so forth, when they see that, they want to destroy it. Because if they can't be happy, then no one can be happy. Always remember that about sex perverts. Deep down, if they know that they can never be happy, and so in their minds, it is like it's their unholy mission in life to make sure that no one else is happy either. And that it's, it doesn't just apply to um, sex perverts and sodomites. It also applies to just general diabolical narcissists. So I mean, everybody knows somebody who has, for example, a mother-in-law or something like that, who literally just tries to ruin their life, tries to ruin every, you know, family gathering, every holiday. This is a very common thing. A diabolical narcissist wants to destroy happiness, goodness, health, wherever they see it. So that's that. I just thought that was really interesting that the seminarian said, you can't believe how how much different the atmosphere at the seminary is now. We are all so much happier. It is such a relief. Then the the conversation turned, as Super Nerd said, to the fact that the only quote unquote homophobia that was going on is the homophobia that the um, that the staff at the seminary had of these two sodomites, and especially one of them, who would openly, whenever anything was said, would openly confront them that, well, you're a homo- you're homophobic, and I'm sensitive, and I have these special emotional needs, and you're not doing this, to where apparently the staff was terrified of them. Um, another word that I would like to say about homophobia is if somebody asks me if I'm a homophobe, the answer is you're, you're damn right I am. Of course I am. Can you imagine how morally insane and how far gone into diabolical narcissism a person has to be in order to engage in these filthy, filthy, disgusting activities that are contrary to the natural law and every fiber of our being as human beings? How far gone and how how far descended and morally insane a person has to be. That is terrifying. We have all been inculcated with this propaganda that, oh, you you shouldn't be afraid. I mean, you shouldn't be afraid of these. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. You should be afraid of people who are morally insane, who are prowling throughout the world seeking the ruin of souls. You should be terrified. You should do everything you can to extract yourself from the presence of such people. You should defend your family, your children, and your friends from people like this because they are a clear and present danger, not just physically and sexually and especially towards children and so forth, but they are spiritually dangerous. You should be 
afraid of people who do extraordinarily evil, wicked things, of which all species of sodomy and sex perversion are exactly that. They are terrifyingly evil activities that people willfully consent to. Um, and so homophobia, you need to stop playing playing the enemy's game and start. And when someone accuses you of being a homophobe, say, damn right, and explain why. What we shouldn't be doing is what the people at this seminary did, apparently. And we're living in terror of these faggots and having the faggots scream and yell and throw a, throw a little fag fit and you're a hater and you're not providing for my delicate sensibilities and, and all of this. Oh, no, you shouldn't be afraid of them in that sense. You should be afraid of them in in the more primordial and overarching sense that these are these are wicked. These are people that engage in wicked, wicked, wicked behaviors, which means that there is something horrifically wrong with them interiorly. And they are dangerous scandal and outright attacks on other human beings. So um, I just I just wanted to to reiterate and kind of follow up on that. And then it kind of got me thinking a lot of people, their critique of me is, Anne, why do you talk about all of this horrible stuff? All of your stuff that you talk about is negative, and it's not edifying. Nothing that you say builds people up and is edifying. And, you know, I just, I want to respond to that and why I talk about situations like this and sodomites doing this, that, and the other, because it actually is edifying to hear the truth. And I have a perfect example of this. A while back, I was in correspondence with a priest who was sent to Rome um, for academic reasons, which is very common, you know, going to study for a semester or a year or whatever it was. And let's just say that this priest is uh, a native English speaker so that we don't give any identities away. So this native English speaking priest gets sent to Rome for an academic reason. He is inclined towards traditionalism, highly orthodox, very, very good priest. So long story short, he's in Rome and he gets invited to go to the Vatican and have a meeting with a, with a curial bishop. And this bishop is known to be one of the bishops in Rome who celebrates the old rite, who does confirmations in the old rite, et cetera, et cetera. So this bishop is known amongst the, the trads in Rome and so forth. And this priest knew of this and said, oh, this will be very interesting. I'll be very, very happy to meet this, this bishop who says the old mass. This will be an interesting meeting, an interesting conversation. Long story short, he goes to the bishop's office and the bishop propositions him for sex. And we, so after this happens and so forth, um, he sends me an email and we're kind of in correspondence about this. And the point of it is, is that because I had spoken about these things and because I had written about the fact that these sodomite infiltrators are, it's just Rome in particular is completely saturated with sodomites in, in terms of priests, in terms of bishops, cardinals, it's just, it's saturated and it's on the left and it's on the right and it's on the trad right. So you, when you, when this happened to him, it was, it had the potential to be extraordinarily scandalizing. Can you imagine thinking, well, how, how does a young priest feel? And he gets sexually propositioned by one of the, one of the guys who's supposed to be quote unquote on our side that has the potential to just, 
to just destroy somebody's faith and be incredibly scandalizing because I had been because I had been talking about this. He was able to say, say, well, wait a minute, maybe this this isn't uh, completely rare. Certainly, I didn't do anything to um, to merit this or to attract this sort of thing to be sexually propositioned by another man, that this is just a common this is just how it is in Rome. Now, I want to tell you what the behavior of this bishop since this happened. And this is just, this is wicked. And I, it, but I say this so that people will understand what the situation is. This priest in Rome, in the center of Rome, people are walking basically the same routes back and forth to the, to along the same street. The center of Rome is very small. And so when you're walking back and forth on these routes, inevitably you see people that you know all the time. So this, this priest that this happened to, um, he saw whenever he sees this bishop and passes him on the street, the bishop puts on this hyper queenie affectation and then acts like the jealous boyfriend. Why don't you call me? Where have you been? Now listen to this. One time this priest happened to be walking into a church and just purely coincidentally at the same time, another, it was either a priest or maybe a monk, just happened to walk into this church at the same time. These two people, these two priests did not know each other. It just is an instance of two human beings walking into the same building at the same time. As these two walk into this church, this bishop is walking out of that church. The bishop stops the priest that he had propositioned for sex, our good priest that we know, and kind of because they were standing next to each other, he also kind of stops the other priest thinking that these two are walking in together. Listen to what this bishop does. Again, he puts on the queenie, jealous boyfriend affectation and says, who is this? Why are you with him? Why don't you ever call me? Where have you been? Now, let's let's stop and think about this. Let's think about what that bishop is doing to our friend, the priest. What he is trying to do, the bishop knows damn good and well that our friend, the priest, is not a faggot because he's propositioned him for sex, and our friend the priest told him to go jump in the lake. He knows the guy isn't a sodomite. What he is trying to do was he was, the bishop, this evil faggot bishop, was trying to imply that our friend the priest was a faggot, and that they were sexually involved in front of this other priest that just randomly happened to walk into the church. Look at the level of character assassination that this evil faggot bishop who's, who celebrates the old mass is trying to imply by this action of acting like the jealous boyfriend um, with, with our friend the priest and this other guy who just happened to be walking in at the same time. Can, can you imagine? All because our friend the priest is a heterosexual, morally sane, practicing Orthodox Catholic priest who declined to engage in sodomy, in sacrilegious sodomy with this, with this curial bishop. I, I mean, if you think about that, it's just, to, to many people, it's, it's a complete shock. Uh, but 
you know, for those of us who know and who understand the depths of the depravity that's going on, it's um, it, it really isn't much of a shock. Uh, so, well, perhaps if you there, stated it, state it a little bit differently in a, in a different context, it makes a lot of sense. For example, if you want to find people who absolutely hate the United States, whether they're Americans or foreign agents, and you want to find them in the highest quantity, you go to the Capitol because that's where they can do the most damage. You want to exactly. find military spies, start looking in the Pentagon. And if you think that you know this kind of activity in Rome, to just talk about the city for a minute, is something that is new or recent, uh, take a look at St. Paul's Epistle to the Rome, Romans. He is specifically mm-hmm. <laughs> preaching against this particular vice. So it, right. it's not new. And so the fact that you have this confluence of this particular vice in the hierarchy of the church, well, that's where the infiltrators and destroyers are going to go because that's where the church is. That's right. And we have Bella Dodd's testimony specifically that there was a communist infiltration and that the communists then turned around and knowing exactly, exactly that what Super Nerd just said is 100% true it's get them in, get sodomites in, get lesbian nuns in, and just infiltrate the whole thing, and then the concentration is there. But the original point I wanted to make is that because people like me talk about things like this, then there's the potential that when something like that happens to a good priest, a good faithful priest, he can say, oh, wait, I'm not alone in this. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't smile too too broadly at this guy. I didn't send any gay signals to this guy. It's just that that's how depraved and how open the depravity is in Rome. And so, because people are equipped with the truth, they can't be scandalized. That's the point. And I know that my website has become just, uh, just completely, almost completely negative. Almost everything I write or talk about is negative. I realize this. But somebody has to do this in order to get the information out so that people aren't scandalized and aren't shocked. I'm really worried about people, young seminarians, uh, you know, nuns who are not following anything of what's going on in the church today. And also, to some extent, also in, in the broad government, they don't know what's going on. And so then what is going to happen to them and how are they going to process it when anti-Pope Bergoglio sets up his New World Order Soros apostate church? How are they going to deal with that if they don't have any of this information and they're not they're not steeled against the scandal of this? And that's I guess a little bit, that's what my motivation is, if that if that informs anybody. But I thought that this anecdote with this, um, with this, uh, our friend, the priest, the English speaking priest getting sexually propositioned, I think it just perfectly illustrates why, why we do this and why we need to talk about these horrible things. It's a public service to everybody who doesn't know what's going on in the church. This is going on. Don't be don't be scandalized. The gates of hell will not triumph. And if you don't know who the who Bella Dodd is uh, and mention her name. She was, I don't know if she was born Catholic or not, but she was uh, a, a leader or high up in a communist cell back in the 1920s and 30s in, in New York City. And their cell uh-huh. alone put 1,100 men through the priesthood and got them ordained. And the, their whole mission was to infiltrate into the hierarchy and further the communist agenda. Yeah. And then she did revert. She uh, either converted or reverted, I think revert. And she died well within the church and and tried to expose all of this. But then, you know, it gets into the domain where only only people who are painted as being tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists falsely like 
like people like me and now us, sorry to, sorry to drag you into the super nerd, but you know, people say, Oh, well, only crazy people talk about Bella Dodd. Well, no, Bella Dodd, if you, if you research it and you discern it is extraordinarily credible. And also what we're seeing now fully confirms everything that she said. Yeah. It took 50, 60, 70 years for this cancer to fully metastasize, but everything she said has now completely come to fruition. I mean, we have, we've got James Martin SJ, you know, being hired to run Vatican Communications, sending out tweets saying, oh my gosh, you guys have fun at Pride this year. I mean, this guy's a flaming, flaming, flaming faggot, and he's being put forward as the communications person, the English-speaking communications person, and this and this huge liaison between uh, the church and and active unrepentant sodomites. It's it's absolutely insane. Everything that Belladod said and all of their objectives are completely coming to fruition, and now this apostasy that's forthcoming and setting up this apostate George Soros church. This is all being done and executed by sodomites. I mean, the proportion of these men that are sodomites who are executing the Bergolian, the Bergolian uh, agenda, I, 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 it's got to be, ooh, if it was north, north of 80, maybe even north of 90% of them are sodomites. So it's all come to fruition. It's hard to argue. And on the topic of the future apostate church. We had an interesting email feedback based on our conversation about um, the horror of Babylon being a mystical form of adultery vis-a-vis the mystery of Jesus and the church as a mystical form of marriage. One listener had an interesting assertion. Could it be that the mass of Paul VI is the trial separation in the church before the ultimate divorce? Yeah, that was a really good email. Do you have it in front of you? I don't have all of it. That was the key phrase that jumped out at me, though. I have it in front of me, so I'm going to read it because it was really good and it's very short. Um, He says, I was enlightened by a comment you made about the coming apostasy and your comparison to divorce. We are being conditioned to accept divorce in general. I mean, (laughs) being conditioned, we already are. And it reminded me of when my parents got divorced after a long, quote unquote, trial separation. Don't the liturgical changes since Vatican II just feel like the trial separation before the divorce? Whatever hope you hold on to for reconciliation seems futile, so in the end, we're almost glad to get it over with. I suspect the end will feel a bit like that. Love the show. Signed, M. Um, And yeah, I can testify to this exactly. When I was a kid, it was when when my parents broke up, and in, went into this trial separation, and we moved out. It was it was just fantastic. It was wonderful. And when they got divorced again, it was it was absolutely wonderful. So you've got this situation where you've got kids actively rooting for their parents to get divorced because of this dysfunction and so forth. And what a what a distorted, horrible mindset that is. That uh, you know the the shame of it isn't isn't there anymore. Boy. My generation, I was born in 76, so I think my generation right in there is when divorce really made the transition from being a a terrible, scandalous thing that was shameful to just completely normal. And at this point, when I meet someone who's my own age, 
you know, if their parents are still married to each other, it's almost like, oh, good for you. Good for them. Wow, that's fantastic. Your parents are still married. So just in that very short span of just a few years that this whole notion of divorce being this terrible thing to something that you're almost rooting for, you know, life, our life is going to be better. Yeah, that's that's how you phrase it. Our life is going to be better because our parents get divorced. And that that was the just the poison that infected everything. And Anne, stop talking before I can come up with a fluid transition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's an edit. <laughs> I didn't, or we can just leave it in. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I thought you were going to keep going there. Uh, should we do some more topics or do we want to wrap it up at this point? Oh, uh, let's see. Where are we in time? What can minutes. I do? About 45 minutes. Um, let's do, because I promised uh, that I would talk about Voris, I'll, t- I'll tell my Voris story real quick. Okay. What's your Voris story, Ann? What's my Voris story? Well, um, in 2012, in March of 2012, I actually paid for Voris to come to Denver and, and uh, give a talk. And it was the first time he'd ever been to Denver. And um, I, I cringe now. I, I set the topic. I told him what I wanted the topic of the, of the lecture to be. And guess what it was? It was masculinity and Catholicism, which now, you know, makes me kind of cringe given, given everything that we know. But um, I went and I picked him and his videographer up at their hotel and drove them around town. And I think I took them to the chancery. He went in and tried to see, tried to see the archbishop, but only saw the archbishop's secretary, had lunch together. So basically spent the whole day together. And then um, I dropped them back off at the hotel. And then I just very quietly went to, went to the talk, but nobody knew that I had organized it and paid for the thing. So I spent the day with him and just just a couple of observations. First of all, um, he does not come off as gay or queeny at all. Um, the only thing that might give you a hint that he might have been gay is the fact that he was in um, he was in TV news. Right. He was both. I think he started he did some on air stuff where, you know, he was the correspondent standing outside the gas station that just got burglarized or whatever on the evening news. And he also did a lot of production. So he has a lot of expertise in TV news. The TV news um, paradigm is as notorious for being stacked with sodomites as, for example, ballet, the priesthood now, sadly. I mean, it it has that level of infection by sodomites. So the only thing that might give you pause about Voris is that he had been working for 20 years in in. TV news, which is a very sodomitically infested paradigm. But he himself, he's pretty much, he's very similar to what he's like when you watch his videos on the vortex and so forth. I mean, that's pretty much what he sounds like. He didn't act queenie at all. I didn't get any of that. So I took him out to lunch and we were talking and he had been within the last year in Rome. And I said, well, how do you find Rome? And he starts going off about all of the, quote, wide-hipped faggots that he was, he constantly kept running into amongst the trad community in Rome. And I had never heard that pejorative before, wide-hipped faggots. Um, But it was later revealed after Voris did his self-exposure and coming out and all that, that one of the things that Voris prided himself on when he was in the gay bars and stuff is that apparently the fags in the bars 
um, didn't think he was gay, said he didn't act like he was gay, didn't look like he was gay. And Voris prided himself on the fact that he had a masculine comportment and a masculine build and so on and so forth. Um, and I had never thought about that, about how um, faggots would would find it aesthetically unpleasing that other faggots had not completely narrow hips, but I guess that is a that's a characteristic of of the masculine form. So there it is. Now, fast forward, I had the extreme misfortune to, for a short period of time, be acquainted with some notorious sacrilegious sodomites who, you know, are around in Rome and and also float around the United States a little bit too. And um, one of them, I remember one of them one time saying when Voris had just done a uh, some vortex about uh, exposing exposing homosexuality amongst the ranks of the bishops or something like that. He he does quite a lot of those, and this who was later revealed to be one of the most notorious sacrilegious sodomites in Rome said to me, "Methinks Mr. Vorth doth protest too much," and. I, I, I had that well, reaction at one time too, but at the, but at the same time, judge the man by by the fruits of his labors, not whether or not he was a fruit. Yeah, well said. But it, what that later, when I realized all this and put all this in context, I think what's interesting to remember is that sodomites have some sort of a way of picking each other out. Okay, now obviously the ones who act queenie that stands out, and we all can pick them out. But then there are, there are sodomites like Voris who are not queenie at all. There has to be some sort of a signal that other sodomites see and pick up on. And the, about the only thing I can figure that it could possibly be is that sodomites are watching other men's eyes. And if the other man um, and if other men look down and check out men's crotches the same way that heterosexual men will sometimes look at, at a woman's breasts, I think if I think they're watching for very subtle cues with eyes like that. And that's that's about the only thing I can figure. Then again, Boris was thrown out of seminary for being a sodomite. So maybe this information had also come down the grapevine. But I just thought it was really interesting that that the sodomites in Rome, the trad sodomites in Rome, had already kind of picked up on the fact that that Voris was gay. They 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 had already heard it or knew it or picked up on it somehow. Or and so at, at least had been active at one point. And I, I, I want to apologize for my little joke there. I didn't I didn't mean to say that he is a fruit. Um, obviously, he, he admitted that he had been in some uh, morally inappropriate situations in the past, to put it mildly. Oh, horrible. He was he was living in the gay bar scene. He was very open about that. He was a fixture. He was one of the hyper promiscuous gay bar denizens. He also was shacked up with uh, one or more, uh, you know, one or more guys in succession. But remember, sodomites despise the entire concept of monogamy. In fact, many sodomites, you know, they'll have one that maybe they live with, and this is my this is my quote unquote boyfriend, but they will intentionally go to gay bars and go cruising together. 
and that's kind of considered recreational activity. Monogamy is just almost completely unheard of, especially amongst male sodomites. So don't think that because Voris was was actually cohabiting with another with his sodom with a sodomite lover that that means that he wasn't having sex and not going to gay bars. Oh, he totally was. They most of them do. Promiscuity is is a feature, not a bug for these people. Um, but. I mean, yeah, he he says he's out of it and that he's not doing those things anymore. But here's the critique I have. Again, talking with him when I met him in 2012, he kind of explained what the whole real estate situation was up there in Detroit. And he took he you know, he cashed out of his work um, as in, in television, in mainstream television. And then he moved up there, and as I understood it, he bought kind of a big suburban American house, you know, one of these big houses that has three, four, five bedrooms, whatever, full basement, blah, blah, blah. So he's living in this house, and his father is living in the house with him. That's great. But then what he's doing is he's hiring all of these young male interns to what was then church militant and is now, um, what's it called now? It used to be Real Catholic TV, and now it's church militant. Right. It used to be Real Catholic TV, and now it's Church Militant. So, But he's hiring all of these young male interns, and then he has them live in the house with him so that, you know, his house is kind of this, for lack of a better word, it's kind of a frat house. It's a bunch of young guys living together in this house with Voris and Voris's dad. And again, this it, it's kind of the same thing. The, ta- the turnaround time between when Voris quit the gay lifestyle and started church, uh, real Catholic TV, was just a matter of a few months. I mean, this was this was just an overnight thing. This is extraordinarily problematic that someone would come out of the intense hardcore sodomite scene. And then just basically, for all intents and purposes, overnight, set yourself up as the face of Orthodox Catholicism in the United States and Canada and say that, you know, I'm the person to do this. Dude, there's the, the knowledge of you being a sodomite is all over the place. You know you're going to get exposed. You know you're blackmailable. Why would you do something like that? See, there's no sense of shame. And there's almost, with diabolical narcissists, there's this constant overhanging, almost an urge that they have to self-sabotage. It's like they want to get caught. It's like they'll do things to set themselves up so that they will be caught and exposed, then they could be even more of the perpetual victim, and then they can do things like watch all of these people that they've that they've scandalized come groveling to them saying, oh, you're, you're so brave, you're so wonderful. No, if you are coming out of something as intensely evil and disordered as the sodomite lifestyle, you need to go away. You need to go far away, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, Go to daily mass, pray, 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 pray. You do not go set yourself up as some public persona and and declare yourself to be to be the arbiter of Catholic orthodoxy or whatever. 
it's it's really really troubling and then and then you're just out of the gay scene and you set this whole thing up and you have you have all these young men coming and living in your house with you that's not cool and there's reports that that Voris will attach to um, to certain interns that he favors. And then if they, for example, say, hey, I'm going out on a date with a girl tonight, that Voris will get all upset and catty and jealous and, oh, you're, you, this girl is trying to tear you away from your work and blah, 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 blah. There's some really unhealthy, bad dynamics swirling around that whole thing. The other last thing I want to mention with regards to the, the current, well, there's two more people I want to mention. Um, with regards to the Vora situation, um, Christine Niles, who is apparently his his right hand man, number one producer, whatever. Okay, when women are friends with men or work with men, and they find out that the guy is a sodomite, there's basically one of two directions that they go. They either say, "Okay, I, I'm stepping away from this. This is disordered." see you later, goodbye, which is the healthy thing to do. Um, The other is the Christine Niles route, which is to triple down and become, you know, she, she fancies, I, from what I've been told, she fancies herself as the woman who's going to convert him and so on, uh, convert him to heterosexuality, blah, blah, blah. And just, you know, entrench yourself even more and become just, defensive to a point defensive of things that are indefensible and turning a blind eye to things that can't that shouldn't have a blind eye turned um and that's very sad it's very sad the other person i want to mention with regards to um voris and that whole outfit is this this person named terry carroll who is a layman he's retired he's he's very wealthy i can't remember what industry he retired out of if it was um medical services or or it or something he's he's a very rich retired businessman who lives somewhere in the suburbs of dallas i think who basically just sticks his nose into everything and starts throwing around enormous amounts of money in order to influence and gain control over these these different entities and voris and church militant slash uh whatever it's called now, Real Catholic TV, he was he was basically calling the shots in all of that. Where this editorial policy that they have about you absolutely cannot say anything, anything, anything bad against anti-Pope Bergoglio. And of course, they would they would die before even entertaining the notion that Bergoglio is in fact the anti-Pope. All of the hardcore anti-SSPX stuff that's all coming straight from Terry Carroll. And the reason why Terry Carroll had all this sway is because Terry Carroll would just write six-figure checks right and left without blinking an eye. And so again, we're into this, we're into this situation and paradigm where there's all this influence, this this unjustified influence being thrown around because people are too effeminate to walk away from money, even though it's it's corrupt, even though it's causing bad things to happen within the organization. And, you know, uh, Voris's outfit isn't the only isn't the only outfit that this Terry Carroll person has poisoned with his meddling and his and his throwing throwing money around and, and, and threatening people 
by by means of saying, well, you know, my money is contingent upon you parroting my positions and so on and so forth. So there's not there's not even any any sort of independent thought there. Terry Carroll, after I paid for um, Vorce to come to Denver, he started calling me. And I ascertained pretty quickly that this guy was first, he was he was an intellectual lightweight. He really he really wasn't a person who in any way was qualified to be to be calling the shots on any of this. And people make the same the same critique of me. People ask me, well, where's your degree in theology? Well, it's it's the same place that Catherine of Siena's is. I'm sorry. But uh, this this notion of this snobbery that nobody can say anything unless you have a Ph.D. in theology when Ph.D. theologians are the most universally inept group of people in the church within the last 60 years you know, to, to quote George W. Bush, heck of a job there, Brownie. I mean, they've, they've sat and, and over, they sat and oversaw over the past 60 years, the systematic destruction of the church. And you're telling me that I should, that I should defer to these people, people who have theological degrees in my estimation, and there's only like one or two exceptions on the entire surface of the planet. It's almost a strike against them, you know? And please, I don't mean to compare myself to St. Catherine of Siena, but St. Catherine of Siena was illiterate until she was well into her 20s. So I, I have to chuckle at people who make these who make these claims that you may not speak unless you have an advanced degree in theology. Well, sorry, that's not true. But Terry Carroll, just being in conversation with him, and he was trying to get his kind of get his claws into me and all of this. I was just like, who is this guy and what is going on? And it just, it just all stunk and it threw up red flags. And so I just, I told him not to, not to contact or call me anymore. And so that all stopped pretty quickly, but just get it, getting everything out there. That's pretty much my, my Voris, um, my Voris stuff. And I, I just, at this point, I just say you got to steer clear of the whole thing. I a lot of what he says and a lot of that content has excellent, true, good, accurate information. But in terms of giving the guy money and enabling this very, very weird dynamic, and also the fact that he's he's just categorically unwilling to say anything against Bergoglio, this papal positivism, this. And, 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 you know, obviously my position is that Bergoglio isn't even the Pope, so that just makes it all the more horrific and galling for me. But, um, no, and, and his, this just hatred, hatred of the SSPX, that's all coming from somewhere else, and it's influenced by money, and when I see people who are influenced by money— and that effeminacy and that unwillingness to stand up to it, whether or not they've come out of the, the gay scene or not, man, that we aren't even talking about that anymore. We're just talking about effeminacy as as a vice uh, that just so turns me off. And I I rarely, rarely look at anything coming out of um, church militant or uh, real Catholic TV. Never watch the vortexes anymore. Um, I used to give him 10 bucks a month or something like that. I don't do it anymore. I just walked away, hands up, no bueno. 
that's not to say that there's not good content coming out of, uh, or that there, there's not some good content coming out of it. Um, I I was a, a monthly subscriber as well for a while when yeah. I first found the guy, yeah. and my my thought was, dude, where did this guy come from, and and how, why did it take so long? And yes, the fact that he's been in television means that he understands uh, on both sides of the camera how to put together uh, a, a good television show. And maybe yeah. maybe that's the the you know the secret sauce that he brings to the equation is that he knows how this stuff is done correctly. Now I, right. I question whether or not it really takes a high level of uh, technical skill in order to get the truth across. I mean, I'm probably screwing up the recording of this podcast, but the point is, if if you can hear and understand it, even if it's not perfect quality, you know, it's not WABC. So it. But but can you understand what we're saying? That's 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 the that's all you need in order to to uh, get the truth across. And exactly. I, I, I mean, look what look what I did with my Koran burning when I first went viral. I had a um, refurbished three hundred dollar camcorder set up in the spare bedroom of my office. And, um, the, the resolution on it is grainy. I, I, it's still on YouTube and I pull it up and I watch it and the resolution is grainy. I wasn't even wearing a microphone. The, the only microphone was the microphone that was built into the camera. I mean, talk about redneck, low quality. You don't need something to be super high definition. I mean, Super Nerd is putting in a lot of effort to, to make things better with this podcast, and, and it's a work in progress, and that's awesome. But you don't need for something to be super, super, super slick. If you just if you speak and your words are intelligible, then that's that's all that's necessary. Or with you know my website, my website has always been redneck from way back in the day when it was my commodity brokerage website. Everything was geared to be simple, not fancy. Look, can I type words into a box somewhere and then hit publish and those words then appear on the website? That's all I need. That's all I need. You don't need to have the fancy pants stuff, but... I mean, and and you're right. A lot of the stuff that's in Voris's library is is good, solid Catholic teaching. But I hesitate. I I really, really hesitate to send anybody over there now, especially now. I mean, not only because of the revelations that he's that he was a sodomite, but but more particularly because he's just so clearly unwilling to to cut the the Terry Carroll apron strings to to potentially lose revenue and lose benefactors and honestly discuss what's going on with with Bergoglio and this horrific situation in Rome. I'm sorry but that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help anybody at all. In fact, it only makes the scandal worse as things devolve and get worse and worse. So that's where I am. And, you know, I made the point that the content is what it's important here. And, and um, if Voris happens to be talking to this, let me say something nerd to nerd to him. Uh, a webcam on your laptop, as long as the content is good, people will watch, listen and support. And in, in terms of this whole topic in general, uh, we're not trying to slam Voris in the same sense that we were talking about Rome being not literally, but or not virtually, but literally a bathhouse in many ways. Just know yeah. what you're getting into. I mean, Voris, I'll take him at his word that that uh, he had a conversion of life and that he hasn't been into any of that. But don't be scandalized when stuff like this comes out in his past. I mean, he had he proactively came out in in uh, one of his Voris Vortex episodes to you know tell about his past because apparently somebody in the archdiocese of new york was getting getting ready to to blackmail him about it so he said i'll beat you to the punch on it 
I thought that was a, a good move. Which is smart, which, which is in and of itself smart and the intelligent thing to do. But what he should have done, if we could turn back time and say, okay, Michael Voris, here's, here's what you do. You quit, you quit the gay scene and then you're out of the gay scene for at minimum, minimum five years and you're going to daily mass, you have a spiritual director, you're maybe working with courage, what the, the good um, same-sex attraction, ex-gay apostolate in the church, it's called courage, um, and, and you're working on you, and, and you get yourself squared away. Then, after five years minimum, if you want to try to utilize the skill set that you have for the glory of God and the benefit of His Holy Church, you can maybe start to do things, but you should be, A, you should be open about your biography from day one so that nobody can blackmail you or intimidate you or anything like that. And also, just because th another thing about that is it seems to me that it helps if someone reveals that they have a problem like that or a struggle. Like, for example, let's look at it from the perspective of an, al of an alcoholic. Okay, if you're an alcoholic and we go out to dinner in a group, T why don't you tell the group right off the bat that you are a recovering alcoholic and that you can't drink anything so that we're not all sitting there saying to you, hey, do you want a glass of wine? This wine is great. Do you really want, oh, dude, you should totally have a drink. You should totally, this wine is fantastic. I've done that before and then just felt awful afterwards. And then I would, I would tell the person, dude, you should have just told me or told us that you're in AA, and that way we would have we would have said, "Hey, man, here's some water. Do you want maybe? Do you want Coke? Do you want tea? What do you want?" And we wouldn't have been doing all night this thing of where we were un unknowingly trying to tempt you into drinking. You should have just told us from the beginning. We, we respect you that you're an AA. We respect that you've turned your life around. Okay, it's the same thing with same-sex attractions. At this point, amongst adults, use common sense, and sometimes it's just a lot better to come out, and, and no pun intended, and just tell everybody what the situation is. And that way, certain um, what might be completely benign to people who don't have same-sex attraction, we can then make sure that we don't set up any near occasion of sin or temptation or anything like that. We have the proper context and framework that we can work with you and we'll help you out. We, good heavens, we don't want to tempt anybody back into something. So, and we will you know, pray for you. And we will pray for you, and we're here for you, and blah, da, 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 da. So we're not going to recommend watching a movie that maybe has a sex scene in it. We're not going to recommend this, that, or the other. Um, we're going to be conscious of this. Just just speak up. It's always the best policy. My problem with Voris is that he didn't speak up right from the beginning. He didn't say anything, and it was just way too fast. Way, way, way too fast. If you're if you're coming out of something like that, any sort of scandal in your in your previous life, there should at minimum be a years long period of of prayer and and getting yourself set right. You can't come out of the gay bars and a few months later be setting up a traditional Catholic catechetical apostolate. I'm sorry, but that just indicates that something's wrong. And maybe in retrospect, he would agree. But you know, like like I said, judge him on the fruit of, of what he's doing. And there are people who are making conversions and, and deepening their faith yes. based on the, the content that uh, Church Militant TV puts out. So Yes. 
Uh, it's so difficult. Real life tends to be difficult, doesn't it? Uh, if it was, if it wasn't, then it wouldn't be meritorious. Indeed. All right, super nerd. We're at what an hour twenty? I think right. we should probably call it. Okay. Until next week, I am super nerd. And I'm Ann. Thank you all so much. God bless. Have a good week. <laughs>